Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. We've been talking a lot on this podcast about where we've been, about who we are, and about who we want to be as men. Each of our own relationships to and journeys with masculinity are important, but I'm feeling like there is more for us to explore and action on as we live in the values of the new masculine. It is incumbent upon us to widen the aperture even further so that we become conscious of what we are teaching and modeling to boys as they were becoming men. My next guest, Jonathan Crystal, is here to talk about this very topic. Jonathan is a prosecutor and certified sexual violence prevention instructor who works extensively with teenagers, their families, and schools to teach physical, digital, emotional, and legal life skills. His new book, What They Don't Teach Teens, Life Safety Skills for Teens and the Adults Who Care About Them, is a guidebook for the complexities of being a teenager in the 21st century. Jonathan describes himself as a father, as a leader, and as a husband. His entire life, from his own challenges as a teen to his wealth of professional experience, has given him insights into what is expected of young people and the ways we don't adequately prepare them for the world. It is, in fact, his role as father of three sons that inspired him to write this book. So, time for Jonathan to share some of his insights with us on The New Masculine. Welcome and thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me, Travis. So you've got a lot of professional experience, but I also know that you have some personal experiences of what it's like to be a troubled teen. <laughs> yes, I do. Tell me a little bit about your story. Tell me why this book was so important for you to write. Well, growing up in Los Angeles, uh, as you indicated, uh, I struggled a heck of a lot. I was a, a good kid who got pivoted off path. I had a difficult family situation. I just was kind of left to my own devices and made many mistakes along the way. I was very fortunate uh, that I was able to get my life together and um, you know, go on to become a lawyer and a prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles. And thankfully, uh, met my wife, Lisa, and we were married 20 years ago. And uh, have three sons. All three are teenagers. And, you know, about five, five and a half years ago, it was starting to bother me. Um, you know, all the tests uh, at school, the boys were under pressure to study and to do homework uh, about, you know, math, history, science. And it, and it got under my skin, all the pressure and stress. But yet there's no, uh, there's no class, at least in the, in the schools that my boys go to on 
understanding what sexual consent is, uh, their rights with the police, what acts can amount to sexual harassment, their digital footprint, sextortion, uh, underage sexting consequences, and so on and so forth. And so I said to my wife, I said, you know, there has to be a book out there that will teach us as parents and teachers and caregivers about something more uh, than what, you know, they're getting taught in school. So I went, she said, well, go find it. Couldn't find it. And I looked everywhere. And then I reported back where I said, well, there's no book. And my wife, Lisa, said, then you should write it. And, you know, she went over my qualifications, teaching sexual violence prevention, you know, the troubled teen, the prosecutor, um, the father. And so I said, yes, I, uh, somewhat reluctantly. And it was a five-year journey of, of writing and researching and interviewing. And, you know, I've had a, a lot of challenges in my life. Um, and this was by far the hardest challenge I've ever faced to get it done. And I'm, I'm very proud of how it came out. Oh, I, I think you should be. I am absolutely in awe of people who sit down to actually go through the, the process of writing a book. It seems excruciating at times because you write it, you edit it, you have to change it. It goes through so many different iterations. And as you say, it's a five-year journey. It's not like just sitting down and writing a high school five-page paper <laughs> and then being done with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big undertaking. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So, you know, I work seven days a week, maybe with one or two days off here and there, but I really worked seven days a week for five years. And so sometimes before I'd go into the office, I'd wake up in the in the morning early and get some work done. Once the boys went to sleep, try to get work done Saturday, Sundays. I mean, it was, it was, it was a task. And, um, and I just kept putting, you know, one foot in front of the other, not thinking about how long it was taking me, just getting something done every day. That was my goal every day. Get one thing done today. And it took a lot of time, but, um, you know, it, it got done. Well, thank goodness for a really supportive partner that um, encouraged you on that journey. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that dedication, but the book, of course, is dedicated to my wife, Lisa, who's a co-author on this and then some. Um, and really, you know, uh, picked up the slack at times so I could jump down and, and into the garage, start working and was my first, uh, line editor, my first proofreader. She's an English major from Cal. So she was immensely helpful in every single way. Oh, God bless her and her skills. It's lovely that your skills are so complimentary to each other for this book. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal journey um, that sort of inspired you. What are some of the stories that you learned as a boy growing up into a man about what it means to be a man? And what were the sort of like lessons that were taught to you throughout? Well, you know, I, I love that, you know, when we spoke, you know, before the podcast and, and you were asking me about some of my memories and, and what it what it meant uh, to be a mas masculine or to grow up and be a man and so on and so forth. And I was reflecting. Just on my early childhood memories, not necessarily related to that, but just my earliest childhood memories. And one that I thought of just instantly, and, and I'd forgotten about it. And it, I don't want to say it was traumatic, but I remember it. And I don't remember a lot from my childhood. And so basically, I was probably six or seven years old, and I was growing up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, moved to LA. And my mom had like a cable TV show, okay? I don't remember what it was about. She would bring people onto the into the show and she'd interview them. She was doing like a holiday toy special, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever toy special. And they had a, a hundred toys in this room and I was going to be on the show. And so they told me before, go in and choose any toy that's your favorite. And then we're going to interview you about the toy. 
So I went in, I looked at every single toy, and I chose Kissing Barbie. That was the toy I loved. That was the toy I wanted to be inter- interviewed about. You know, you put some lipstick on the Barbie, I don't remember. Then you put her up to your face and she left a little lipstick on. Well, the producer, no, no, no. He would not let me be interviewed about that toy. He said, no, that's a girl, that's a toy for girls. And I, I remember how I felt. I felt perplexed. I was confused. I, I just couldn't process why it's a, it's a toy. I'm a kid. Why does it matter what's for a girl and for a boy? And so that's really my first childhood memory of having to conform and having to, you know, uh, you know, be a man and grow up to, to be a man, which means you can't like girls toys because uh, you're not strong then or you're weak or, or, or whatever, you know, whatever the narrative, at least in that producer's eyes. Right? So that was really my first glimpse into that. Um, and, you know, growing up, uh, you know, really, I don't remember a lot of other things from when I was young, but I remember when I was in L.A., you know, I'm 11, 12 years old. And, you know, as like guys, we never hug. And, you know, I hug all my friends. Uh, guys, girls, whatever, we hug. And not just the bro hug with the pound. No, we hug. If you hug, when I was a kid, if you hugged, you were gay. And mm-hmm. there was, there was nothing, nothing else to it. Uh, I, and what's so frightening when I think back on that is it's not like I ever thought there could be something else. Oh, maybe they're just, they care for each other and they're just good friends. And I don't want to say all of us thought like that, but a lot of us thought like that. Um, and certainly, you know, I can't cry. I can't show weakness. I can't wear, you know, any colors that would indicate, quote, I might be gay. That's what we were afraid, afraid of, or, or not necessarily afraid of, but we were afraid of being judged. Um, and I look back and it's frightening to me. How could I be so ignorant? How could I be so foolish? How could none of my circle of friends have ever said, guy, you're way off on me. And flash, you know, forward to today where I, I look, there's still all sorts of, you know, issues that uh, many we're going to talk about with respect to masculinity and what it means to be a man. But I, you know, just look at my own sons <clears throat> and they struggle. We, Look, kids struggle with all sorts of things, but they certainly know that men hug and aren't necessarily gay or probably not gay. Uh, they hug for all sorts of reasons. Um, one of my sons loves to wear pants. He doesn't care what people think. I mean, there's, it's progressed so much and, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm kind of scared to think about how I was all those years ago. I'm 49, so that gives you a time. It's amazing to think about looking back on that, how much it felt like was at risk by just wearing a pink t-shirt or a purple t-shirt. There was no way I was going to be wearing pink or purple. It felt like everything was at risk at that point. And I am gay. And so having to think about, oh, I'm going to be perceived this way. And I'm also already knowing this about myself and afraid. That was like double the fear on me in that situation. Oh, I could only uh, imagine. And the thing is, we were friends with people who were gay. We didn't care, like, if so-and-so was gay, nice guy, but I don't want to be, be perceived that way. It makes no sense, um, mm-hmm. which is why it's so upsetting. And, and, and when I reflect, you know, these years later, well, well, I can just tell you consciously, 
you know, my wife and I, you know, but particularly as a man, I've, I've done what I can and I'm still doing so that my boys don't, you know, grow up with certain stereotypes in their mind um, and certain preconceived ideas based on what they see or read or hear um, that the narrative is just so often false um, and, and hurtful to them. Yeah, it makes me think of you as you were talking about the physical affection piece between men and how men don't hug. There's that picture that's going around it being election season. And there's that picture going around of Joe Biden hugging and kissing his son on his cheek. And the uproar that came about how disgusting that is that a that a father is kissing his son on the as adult son on the cheek. It's amazing to me that we're still having that conversation about what's not allowed in this shared love between men a father and a son even like we're still having that conversation about how inappropriate that is. That's so strange to me. Uh, it's strange. It's astonishing. It's upsetting. Um, and ignorant. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's really hard for me to, to wrap my head around that all these years later there, you know, some of us have evolved. Uh, some of us still have evolving to do. Uh, but yet some are still, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever, uh, you know, thinking that, you know, things are, are, are different than, than actually how they are today. Yeah, totally. So you've shared with me that, and you talk about it in the book, you talk about some of your own like teenage challenging experiences that are a big part of why you write this book, especially around police interactions and, and interactions with the law. Also, why you became a prosecutor in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Sure. Um, well, you know, a couple of things stand out, um, you know, well, essentially, as you as you indicated, Travis, you know, my personal stories are weaved through every chapter. So every chapter in the book, I have some connection to personally, professionally. And um, when it comes to, let's say, police interactions, I had many police interactions when I was uh, in high school. I was arrested when I was 16 for a nonviolent offense. Um, and, and, you know, one of the stories I relay was, well, you know, was that, you know, essentially, not only did I not know the rules of engagement, I didn't know what my rights were, did I ask questions, did I refuse to search, um, which made me scared. Um, but, you know, on the night of my arrest, I didn't comply with orders. And instead of putting my hands up, I was in my car, I reached under, I put my hands below my seat. And I later found out, uh, that the, the police who had their guns trained on me, um, had considered shooting, had fire, had considered firing. And I, I heard that after the fact, which terrified me. I, I relay that story to, you know, emphasize that, you know, interfacing with the police is no joke, even when you've done nothing wrong, but also to emphasize, you know, what's going on, not just today, but what's been going on for many, many years, um, is racial injustice. And many people, uh, particularly, uh, you know, people of color, um, had they been in my situation, would the police have fired? Yeah, they very well might have. So, you know, I, I really emphasize in the, in the two police chapters, one on, you know, what to do and not to do when you're pulled over in a car or on foot, and the other about the Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights we all have is that, look, interfacing with the police, uh, is no joke. It's serious business for you. It's serious business for them. And, uh, and we all have to be mindful uh, of what our rights are and, and how we're coming across and our actions. 
Um, but certainly, um, we see racial uh, injustice. We see police brutality uh, against the disabled, against people of color. And, um, you know, young people, again, particularly of color, um, they know a lot of the stuff that's already in this book related to police interactions. I'd like to, I'd like to think I've added a, a fair amount to that, but because their parents or grandparents or caregivers were so afraid of them interacting with the police that they taught this to them at a young age. And so any way you shape it, um, it's really important for young people to know what to do and what not to do when they interface with the police. Yeah, I, lo- I love how you're talking about this sort of like in, in different communities because of the disproportionate ways they're impacted by uh, interactions with the police and the safety within it. There has been an essential like survival skill about knowing how to interact in those moments that some peop- some young teenagers are taught and some are not taught. And I'm so grateful that you're bringing this topic up because I think it's one of the things I was most fascinated about when we got connected to do this interview was to sort of pick your brain around this this balance that you strike in your career around being a prosecutor who's in charge of prosecuting crimes, but also educating teens and the adults who care about them about their interactions with the police so that they can be informed in the way that they interact with the police. I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, but I'm really curious about that tension point between being a prosecutor but also being somebody that's very aware of the disproportionate ways that people of color are impacted by our legal system. Oh, for sure. You know, there is tension. And let me tell you a quick little story. So when I wrote the two chapters uh, on police interactions, and I had them polished, and they were pretty well advanced. Um, like you said, I am a prosecutor. I, I work with the police every day I'm on the job. And I have close relationships with the police officers. And I'm very supportive of the police. And it's my belief that, you know, uh, I call for criminal justice reform in the book. Uh, I talk about the importance of that. I talk about racial injustice, um, police brutality. They're not mutually exclusive. I believe I can be supportive of the police and still uh, policing as a nation has to be changed. We need to improve it. Uh, and I, again, I don't, I don't think those uh, contradict each other. So I, I drafted uh, the two chapters on the police. And I know, I, I gave it to a friend to read and go, man, you're telling all the, the tricks of the trade here. I go, well, these are people's rights. They have every right to know what they're allowed to do and what not to do. But man, the cops are going to be mad at you. I said, well, this is what I taught my own son. I'm publishing these chapters. But out of an abundance of caution, I, I gave it to some police officers and friends with too. I said, listen, please read these two chapters. Be very honest with me. Are you mad? Uh, are you pissed off at me? That I'm giving away, you know, the tricks of the trade. I'm telling people, you know, what you might say to get them to admit something leading to their arrest or, or how you get people to consent when they don't want to consent. And they all said the exact same thing. The ones that had kids, every single one said, Jonathan, after they read the chapters, what do you think I taught my own son? What do you think I taught my own daughter? And that man, that blew me away. I was not expecting it. And if a prosecutor, uh, is teaching his son um, about what their rights are and what to do and what not to do. And police officers are teaching their children. You know, other people may want to have this information as well. It's valuable information. And I'll, I'll just segue into a, a quick uh, other little story. About six months ago, I'm driving with one of my sons. I don't want to identify which son by giving the age. 
but I'm driving with one of my sons and I know out of my three sons, he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't care for the police. At least at this age, he, he sees, and I get it as a young person, he hasn't had a number of interactions with the police. So he sees what's happening, particularly with black men on TV where they're being shot for doing nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, the police brutality, and that's what he sees, and he's angry about it. And I understand that. We're all angry, or at least many of us are angry about it. So he, we're driving together, and I've talked with him about these issues, and I get pulled over. So the, the you know, blue and red lights uh, shine. I, I get pulled over, roll down my my window a little bit. I put my hands on my stainless so the officer knows I'm not a threat. And as the officer approaches my window, before he can say anything, before I can say anything, my son starts yelling at him. How dare he pull me over? What is he doing? Blah, blah. Oh, my dad's no. a prosecutor. <laughs> the cop died. <laughs> I seriously, I, 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 I was just, just couldn't believe he said he was going off. And so at the exact same time, the officer and I said, you stop it. You be quiet. This is none of your business. And what I said to him afterward, and I talk about this in the book, I said, look, at this point in your life, you may not respect the police. I think you should respect the police, but I can't tell you how to feel. But no matter how you feel about the police, it is infinitely in your best interest to treat them with respect. Now, should you be able to mouth off to a cop and not be, you know, physically hurt? Of course you should, right? The police don't have the right to do that to you based on your words, but you get the wrong officer at the wrong time. Uh, you may get hurt or worse. And so, look, my my goal as your dad is for you to come home safely, just like it is for everything, just like it is for every caregiver. And you will have a better chance of doing that if you treat the police with respect. So for no other reason, just do it because it's in your best interest. Yeah, it, it reminds me of another part of your book where you're talking about sort of um, physical safety, being out there in the public, especially at night. And you're like, there's a point where you like stress like, you're probably not going to win against a gun. So don't argue yeah. in that way. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Your your safety needs to be your priority, not being correct or right or the, mo the most dominant in power. And I think that's such an interesting thing that we've been talking about in previous episodes of this podcast is this desire within masculinity to overpower or to be the most powerful thing in the room and how that can get us into so much trouble and be so harmful to ourselves and to others when we're engaging in that sort of power over dynamic with each other. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up um, because, you know, I, I do a lot of um, in-person teaching about the concepts in the book throughout Los Angeles and, you know, the last nine months or so via Zoom. And when I do the um, events in person and I teach on street safety, I always ask the same question um, to the group. Of young people. How many of you um, would give chase to someone if you're walking around with your iPhone, they snatch it and start running? How many of you would, you know, you know, be upset, um, but not chase after? And how many of you would go after the thief? And I'd say about half of the hands in, in the group go up, about half of the young people would go chase after the, you know, the robber. And I'd say about 70 percent or 80 percent of the hands in the room are the, the boys are the young men and you know I, i've never really broken it down and tried to you know overanalyze it but yeah i think it falls in line with, with what you're saying H how can i be strong how can i be a man if some guy is just going to come take my phone and i don't do anything about it 
Like, what's that say about me? Am I a punk? Am I weak? Um, and what I say in the book, and of course in person, is, you know, uh, your job is to just make it home safe. You can get a new iPhone, right? Your, your purse, your wallet, your money it can all be replaced. Yeah, it's going to suck. Um, it's upsetting. Um, but, you know, you physically can't be replaced. Your, your health, if you get shot, you know, it's hard to fix that, you know, with the snap of a finger. You can't just go to the Apple store and get something, a new device. So, um, yeah, so the physical safety is a big part of it. And I think, you know, the masculinity or this concept or the idea of masculinity absolutely plays a part in that. Um, and, and feeling, you know, that, that, that I'm tough. Um, and that if I, you know, if I don't stand my ground, if someone, I also talk about if someone's yelling at you, just walk away. And I explain why it's important to walk away. Everyone has a gun. There's more guns than people in our country. I go into all of that. Um, but you can see how often, you know, um, if, so, if someone, if a man challenges another man, boy, boy and boy, whatever, um, it can be hard for them to just, turn the other cheek and walk away because people may perceive them as being weak when actually they were stronger for just being able to walk away. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly our cultural conditioning kicks in and we're like, I have to be a man in this situation and to do anything other than to attack is emasculating. It's fascinating. And I'm so glad you're saying this because we're in such a divisive time right now where the temperature is so hot and things are escalating beyond control all over the place. And I think that it's really important, especially in our current times, to to cool the situation down, to keep yourself safe, not as a way of, uh, of trying to be some hero in some way, but just to keep yourself safe, to learn how to cool the situation and, least, and, get, the, and to get the hell out of there <laughs> so yeah. that you can stay safe. That's what it's all about. It's, it's staying safe, you know, Obviously, physically, emotionally, um, digitally, uh, it, it, legally, there's many different layers to the safety we're talking about, and there's a ripple effect. And in one way or another, they often intertwine. And you know, in the book, I have it divided into three sections: uh, the first section on the police and street safety, the second section on sex violence and misconduct, the third section on on uh, digital safety. But they all intertwine. You can't really separate any of these, right? Because our lives are so intertwined, whether it's our, our physical lives, our digital lives, our emotional lives. They, they all go together and you can't, you know, make a decision in one and, and not have it have an impact directly or indirectly in the other. And so as we kind of put a period on this sort of section of the book that's around interactions with the police and street safety, is there one like major key theme that you would draw people's attention to? Absolutely, they can go. They should go and find the book to find out all of the different explanations that you go through. I think one of the cool part is is that you lay out the chapters. You say what clearly they're going to get out of the chapter, and then after at the end of certain chapters, there's quizzes that they can take yeah. that the team yeah. can take. I love that yeah. concept because it's meeting them where they're at developmentally, and really asking them to think critically about what they learn, not just skimming through pages, but actually have to sort of be accountable at the end of each chapter. So there's yeah. some really fantastic things that are about this book. I'm wondering if you have one sort of like key thing that you like to make sure to impart when talking to teens about their interactions with police. 
I, you know, I think that the most important is to just be respectful. I understand, as we were talking about before, you know, I understand people have strong feelings about the police, um, but it's always in our best interest to be respectful. Um, and then when it comes to knowing your rights, you know, you don't have to consent to searches. You don't have to, the, to answer questions of the police. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. And I, I weigh, you know, I, I weigh out some of the options you have in these situations and, you know, what might be at stake for you or for someone else. And so there's a lot to think about when, uh, we consider uh, invoking our rights. But the most important thing, um, is to follow the law. The police can come at your door, whether you've done something wrong or not. They can stop you. We've seen it over and over, whether you've done, uh, something or not. But if you want to stay out of the crosshairs of the police, the best thing you can do, it is not a guarantee, but the best thing you can do is follow the law. It helps. Yeah, it helps. And I'm also grateful that you're honest that it's not foolproof because I think we've seen some really powerful representations with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd, of places where it's not about disrespect to the police and it's not about breaking a law and it and their lives were taken from them. And so I think that oh, it's... Yeah. It's important to say here's here's your best bet and acknowledge the reality that it's not a it's not a guarantee that that's what's going to work. Right, and, and remember, I started writing this book over five years ago, and I was talking about racial injustice when I started writing it. Um, now, now these issues have really come front and center as they should. Um, and, and when I first uh, the the chapter two was called Safer Police Interactions. It was first entitled Safe Police Interactions. And I, I changed the title. I go, how can I call it Safe Police Interactions? There are certainly many, many situations that no matter what you do, it's not going to be safe. So that's why I call it Safer. Increase your chances, increase your odds of having a safer police interaction. Yeah, I'm so glad that you can, that you differentiate between the two. Um, because I, I think it is important to really acknowledge that there are certain situations that, that it's not your fault that it became unsafe. We see a lot of interactions, especially around people who are peacefully protesting where it's escalating beyond. I I live in the middle of Capitol Hill neighborhood in Seattle and two blocks from the occupied protest zone that happened this summer. And so got to see a lot of that firsthand and got to see the escalation that happens even when people are following the laws and being respectful. So I, I appreciate that you can differentiate the two and that you can sort of encourage safer interactions and then there's also the unknown that can happen exactly so um section two of the book is all around like sexual assault consent sexual harassment share with me some of the um, key points that are important to you of why we need to educate young boys but also just young people in general around these concepts sure so chapter excuse me section two has um consent harassment, sexual harassment, teen dating violence, and online sexual blackmail called sextortion. Um, and out of the 11 chapters in the book, there is one chapter where I introduce the, the material and I say, this is the most important chapter in the book. And that chapter is sexual consent, sexual assault. Um, and I say, I explain, look, you know, you should know your rights, but you may never, you know, come into a situation where you need to invoke your rights or you have a friend who attracts your attention to the police and you need to help them. Um, you know, you may not get sexual harass, uh, sexually harassed and you probably won't harass anybody anyway. But 
most readers, maybe all, are going to have sexual interactions. And there's no gray area here. You either have sexual consent or you don't. Period. And, you know, talk, you know, going back to when I was a young, young person, you know, my mom, my parents were divorced and my mom, I remember her talking. She said, look, um, no means no. If you don't hear no, you can keep going. Now, at the time, that was the standard for sexual consent. Uh, maybe we didn't know better. Maybe some people did and many of us were just ignorant. But now we certainly know that there are many reasons why someone may not utter the words no, but not want the sexual activity. And the appropriate, the necessary uh, standard for sexual consent is affirmative consent. You ask and wait and get an enthusiastic yes before proceeding. And someone can stop and revoke their consent at any step along the way. So there's there's no excuses. Um, every, everyone, not just young people, but obviously my, my book is focused on you know, younger people. Um, you just have to understand what sexual consent is and what it is not. And I go on in the chapter um, to talk about, you know, what I see. You know, there's many myths around uh, sexual assault. Uh, for example, like men can't be assaulted. Well, yeah, men can be assaulted. Men are assaulted by other males and by females. Um, if, a, if a girl or a woman is dressed a certain way uh, it, it, and she's assaulted, she's at fault. Of course, that's not true, but people believe these things. That's a myth. Victim blaming, you know, that young woman, uh, she was vulnerable and someone took advantage of her and committed a, a terrible act against her. So there's so many myths related to sexual consent and sexual assault. So we go through a lot of those. But to me, again, as the author, people will have different opinions as to what they think is the most important thing. And I like that. Everyone should have their own two cents about what resonates most. Uh, with them and their values and, and their point of view. But from my perspective, the most important part, once we understand affirmative sexual consent, the most important part in that chapter is the section on alcohol and consent. Because, you know, I teach on street safety. You name everything in the book I teach, okay, to, to families, to schools, to just parents, to, to all sorts of folks. And I get more questions about alcohol and sexual consent than anything else by far. There is so much confusion and misunderstanding uh, about how alcohol can, can play a part in, in consent. So I really um, I try to simplify things throughout the book. Uh, I want the book to be accessible to any reader, someone from sixth grade to an adult. And so, you know, I, I try to like, break things down, explain things in a simple way of why, you know, someone who's drunk, and when I say drunk, I mean high as well, okay, we'll talk, we'll focus on alcohol, but highly intoxicated from anything, um, you know, why they can't give you consent. Even if someone says yes, if they're drunk, they don't have the yes to give, they can't lawfully give you the yes, um, they, don't, they, they can't give you what they don't have by law. And so you you can't accept the yes. You can't ask for it, and they can't give it to you. So one, someone who's drunk can't give you consent. Um, the best advice I can give to the young people, um, and everyone, of course, is that if you want to hook up with somebody and they've had any alcohol whatsoever, or you've had any alcohol whatsoever, the best practice is to 
not have any sex activity, wait for another day, another sober day. But as I acknowledge in the book, that may not be the most practical advice because we do know that young people are drinking and hooking up. We also know um, that there is some amount of alcohol consumption um, that can go along with the consensual sexual interaction. I think the problem becomes for young people in particular, particularly those who are not lawfully allowed to drink and may not have the experience and the life experience, that, you know, you got to know where that line is. And if you're not sure where that line is, you got to you got to bring it way back and, and, and assume like the line right in front of your face. And so one of the things I, I, I advise, like, again, best never to hook up if you had any alcohol. But having talked to so many young people in, in, in person, that's not enough for them, right? They're like, yeah, but I need to know, and uh, that's not really going to help me. So I, I came up with a, with a, a saying, and I, uh, there's experts throughout the book. So I have people who I've interviewed and whose voices are in the book. Some of them have been working in their fields of expertise longer than I've been alive. And I, I think you can say I'm 49. There's people working in sexual violence prevention for 60 years who are in this book and whose opinions I greatly value. So I came up with this concept and I ran it by them and they were very favorable about it. And that is, you know, if you wouldn't drive with them because, you know, you, you, for example, you were friends with them and you would take their keys because they're slurring or stumbling or acting out of character or, you know, all these other objective signs that often come, come along with someone being highly intoxicated. You can't hook up with them. If you wouldn't drive with them, you can't hook up with them. And when I've been teaching, I started teaching that to, to young people. And you see kind of like, all right, I can kind of get that. Is it perfect? No, because you may not always see these objective signs. And I try to explain that, but it's a starting point because, uh, young people, they're very plugged in. At least the young people I come across. They're very plugged into the problems of drunk driving. They Uber, they take each other's keys, they'll find other, they'll, they'll get rides from people. They're very plugged into the dangers of driving uh, while drunk. Well, it's no different. If you, if you wouldn't let somebody drive, don't hook up with them. I love that there's such clarity that around the drunk driving piece. I, I imagine a lot of the teenagers around right now are growing up with parents who were a part who went through the whole dare program in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Um, it yeah. just makes me think of the shirts that we used to wear the dare program. And so like all these teenagers <laughs> are, are byproducts of, of that level of education that we yeah. all got around drug abuse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. But they really are plugged into that. Uh, you know, not all of them, all, of course, but way more than, than we were as young people. Uh, and, and when I, you know, I'm older than you, but for, before Dare, I think it was Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And, um, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, you could call a cab and, you know, you could get a cab ride home. But no one calls cabs. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, you didn't want to wait for a cab. And you just didn't take drunk driving uh, necessarily as seriously as I think more people do today. Yeah, that's for sure. So there's um, a couple of pieces that I thought were really interesting, especially in chapter four that I wanted to sort of pull you out on. I'm so grateful that you talked about that infer- affirmative consent thing, because I do think our definitions of, of of consent have changed the ways that we describe consent. Because I believe 
my experience of childhood was is that we learned the no means no rule. And so to hear it really tra- that it's transitioned and t- changed to yes means yes, I think it's such an important thing for all of us to understand and to really be having conversations with young men about because that is where the line needs to be. It does need to be yes means yes. And I think for a long time, there was this stigma around asking for permission to kiss someone or to to become sexually involved. That wasn't manly. That wasn't suave. That wasn't cool. Like that was in some way emasculating. And I actually love that we're getting to this point because of all of the intense craziness that we've had to observe and witness um, that we're getting to the point where it actually can be considered really masculine to just make sure you have consent and to make sure that yes means yes. Absolutely. And, you know, what I say over and over in the book is this, everything in this book is not just for boys. It's not just for girls. It's not, it's for anyone, regardless of your gender, your gender identity, your sexuality, your sexual identity. It doesn't matter. You know, um, everyone should be talking to each other about what they want sexually if they if they're interested in each other or they think they might be interested in one another and um it it, it's not it's endearing uh it's it brings confidence it brings clarity who doesn't want that and one of the things i mentioned in the book is it's so strange that people are so often more comfortable having sex rather than talking about sex so you, you you're afraid to ask me for consent but yet you just want to have uh sex like can't we just talk about it a little bit can't you just say hey uh, i'm interested would you like to do this um it's not complicated and, it, and and what i hear all the time is well it's going to ruin the moment no it doesn't it doesn't ruin the moment at all if anything um it enhances the moment mm-hmm. uh, so i i just I, and i do think i think that's some of the masculinity or the perception of what masculinity is like i'm a man i don't have to ask you i'm gonna read your cue and when it's time i'm gonna kiss you i don't have to ask to kiss you but we know cues are misunderstood all the time particularly when there's alcohol involved now obviously alcohol doesn't cause sexual uh, sexual assault but it is a factor in half of all sexual assault there is alcohol consumption by the perpetrator, uh, the victim, or both. So there is some connection here, and uh, we're just bad at, at judging people's cues. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and I think that it's best to just take the guessing game out of it. And I like that sort of concept that if you're not ready to talk about it and say what you want to do and ask for permission about it, you might not actually be really ready to be engaging in those behaviors you're not at the maturity level to be able to have a conversation, maybe it's time to hold back and, and check in. Why do I feel so uncomfortable having that conversation? But, but, but exactly. But that goes back to, you know, why I'm here with you and why you started this podcast and so many other things you do. Um, is that it, it's this masculinity, this concept of masculinity, right? Um, you know, I, I don't see guys asking the movies, the cool guy in the movies doesn't, or the TV show. He doesn't ask. He just does. And the girls respond. The women all love him. And, you know, I, I get it. It, it. I grew up with that. And I didn't have anything to offset that. Okay? Um, I, there were no podcasts like you're doing. There was no book like mine. Um, at least I don't think there was a book like mine. But um, 
And these are dangerous messages that I just saw over and over. And at least today, these young people, they are still seeing these things. But at least there is a counter narrative at, at, at times that, that I hope they hear. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think something, a byproduct that's come across, come out of like the Me Too generation and, and women coming forward and people coming forward talking about their sexual assault experiences and unwanted sexual advances from men mostly in these situations um, is this fear that I've heard people discussing parents talking about their teenage boys about like, well, what if a, what if a girl makes up a story about her being raped by my son? She could ruin him forever. We saw it play out through the whole Kavanaugh um, uh, trial or the Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court. We saw this whole like, what if someone, what if a woman or someone makes up a story about a boy about rape? There's a part of the book you talk about that sort of that that myth around false rape ac- accusations. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that was kind of a, a later addition to the book. I probably added that you know in one of my later drafts because. I kept getting these questions when I did the in-person uh, events um, around, you know, the sexual consent topic, primarily from mothers of sons, okay, from the boys themselves, but really a lot from moms of sons about these false rape accusations. And look, I have three sons. Um, I worry about everything related to my sons. Um, is there a part of me that worries about a, a false rape accusation? I guess as much as I worry about anything else, but do I lose sleep over it? Of course not, because it is a myth. False rape accusations happen. No doubt, they certainly happen. The myth is that they happen frequently because they don't happen frequently. Rape is the most underreported crime in our society. So there's probably never going to be an allegation because for many, many reasons, victims are afraid to come forward. Okay, for countless reasons. So there's probably never going to be an allegation. And when there is an allegation, it's very, very rare where uh, a young man or a young woman, but typically it's going to be a, a man accused, is going to go to prison or is going to be prosecuted or is even going to be arrested. That's a whole other uh, situation going on there. Then um, when, when they are uh, false rape accusations, when they are deemed false, those false reporting uh, recordings are around 2 to 5%, uh, which is the same false reporting of other crimes. So really, you know, it, it, it's it's a myth. Um, so, you know, that's what I, I try to convey. It's, it, it, look, you know, it could happen just like any of these other ills might befall us. But it is very, very unlikely. And the way, and I've told my own boys, you know, in a, in a, in a roundabout way, that if you're afraid, um, and I say it to the people I teach, if you're afraid of a rape op- uh, false rape accusation. First, let me give you the facts, right? Why it's, it, it's not probably going to happen. And two, if you're st- still fearful of it, I can give you a two-step plan so that you are almost guaranteed, almost 100% guaranteed to never get a false rape accusation. And the two steps are one, and we've covered them. One, don't hook up with anybody who's had any alcohol consumption or if you've had any alcohol consumption and again, I'm talking about any intoxicating substances, but alcohol is the biggie. And two, always practice affirmative sexual consent. If you don't do those two things, which you should be doing anyway, right? We should all be doing those things. Um, you're not going to get a false rape accusation. And I do also want to just segue a little bit 
to another place in the chapter where I talk about um, the fact that I was sexually assaulted by a female, and I, I, I don't I, I don't have trauma around it. Um, it. It was upsetting at the time, and when I think about it, it's upsetting. But look, I, I, I don't want to compare myself to to other uh, victim survivors of sexual assault because you know not to discount it, but it didn't take my life off the rails. Okay, but um, and I speaking about late additions to the book. I didn't include in the sexual assault chapter my own experience with sexual assault probably until we were like close to being done with the book. And I only added it because I was interviewing uh, someone for that chapter. And I was wrapping up my interview about sexual assault and consent and, and so on. And I always entered my interview to the same question with every expert. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share with me? And he said, yeah, there is. He said, look, I want to be very clear that men are assaulted too. Boys are assaulted too. And sometimes by, by females, sometimes by males. But yet there's this feeling amongst males and men that if you were sexually assaulted, you're weak. Why did you put up a fight? How could you not want the sexual activity if it was from a woman, right? How do you not want sex? Are you a real man? And, and so I was assaulted by a woman and, um, I mentioned it a couple times uh, to friends, and they laughed. Boom. I couldn't even finish, like, my second sentence, and they, they thought it was hysterical. And I wasn't sitting there crying about it, and, and, and maybe I should have been. I don't know, right? But but um, I was just sharing something I had gone through. Um, I wasn't even leaning on them. It was just conversation, like, well, this happened to me, and it was upsetting. And... It made me shut up. It made me not share it with anybody. And when my the expert uh, said that to me, I was like, man, uh, he's absolutely right. Why aren't I sharing? I've shared my experiences throughout this book. I've bared my soul in, in throughout this book. Why aren't I going to share that too? So I ended up sharing that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, people appreciate, um, you know, how honest I've been and how candid I've been. And also that, you know, I'm not less of a man uh, because a female sexually assaulted me. Um, at least I don't think I am. And anyone who, who does, they're a fool as far as I'm concerned. I'm so glad you you brought that topic up and you're sharing this because I think that in some ways is modeling a new version of strength as a man. Strength in your vulnerability. Not the strength that nothing ever happens to you negative and you've never been coerced or or put in a situation that where you were a victim of something that is this misleading thing that we all as men always need to be in the dominant position and yet life happens life is hard life happens to all of us and so i appreciate you sort of modeling that version of strength that is in your vulnerability that is owning your experiences so that others can see themselves in that and can feel safer being who they are I, um, I'm also glad you brought it up because I brought I pulled this quote out from the book that really kind of encapsulates this that I was hoping to hear more from you around. And it's the, it's on page 103 of the book. And it says, male victim survivors of sexual assault can have the same feelings and reactions as female victim survivors, but often face increased pressure and challenges because of social norms and what it means to be masculine. It's so interesting that not only is the experience traumatic, but then there's this whole social component of being less of a man attached to it, no matter what the gender is of the of the perpetrator on the male victim survivor. 
Yeah, and, and it's brutal. And you know, I don't recall the stats uh, off the top of my head, but I think um, you know some of the stats are you know one in four women uh, are sexually assaulted uh, at some point in their lives, and one in thirty-three men are sexually assaulted at, 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 at any point or at one point in their lives. But when you, and this is from the, the rape and incest, uh, network, rain, uh, rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. But, um, but, you know, there's a little asterisk or there's a little explanation when you see the one in 33 and it, it always goes along the lines of something like, well, we think the number's much higher with men, but there's a greater stigma that men don't want to report sexual assault because again, uh, how could I let another man sexually assault me? Uh, I, I guess I'm not strong. I guess I'm not tough. I guess I'm a win. Um, how could I let a woman, uh, sexual assault me? And how could I even think it's sexual assault if, if, if a woman wants to have sex with me? I'm supposed to want that sex, right? Isn't that what being a man's about? Never turning down sex. You want as much sex with every woman that you can get. Well, you know, obviously that's not the case. These are, you know, uh, lies we tell in society. These are lies we tell ourselves. These are the myths. These are the false narratives. And, um, you know, uh, I just, I try to do what I can to want to, to bring the information to light that, you know, you're not weaker. Um, these things, as you said, life happens. Anything can happen to anyone. But when it comes to raising my sons, I want them to, to really understand that, you know, uh, one, I hope when they do have sexual activity with someone they care about. Um, but there's nothing wrong with not wanting sex. And any of their friends who, you know, think they're crazy for not wanting to go out with somebody, they're just, they're foolish. They don't know what they're talking about. And, um, and same thing, you know, when I talk to my sons, um, about, you know, they're tired of me saying these things, but, you know, I, I don't ever want to, uh, hear a situation where, they or their friends are talking about how hot girls are. Oh man, she's got this and she's got that. And what I would do to her. That is like one of those things that gets really under my skin because, you know, I think I mentioned to you, women, women are under temperature. We don't, we, we don't describe women as hot or not. They're human beings. And I say, look, if you think someone's attractive, sure, you can say, I think she's really pretty or I think she's really nice or she's great. But to start Talking in crude terms, uh, I think, does them and, and anyone they're associating with a huge disservice. I think it does men uh, and, and young men a huge disservice. And um, they know better. And I told them there will be times, I guarantee you, that you'll be with some guys and they're going to start talking crudely about women uh, or, or they're going to make you know, comments that are you know, slut-shaming or demeaning. And I hope you're brave enough to say something. I hope you're the one brave enough to say, hey, man, that's not funny. Let's not let's not talk that way. So we'll see what happens. But at least I'm trying to educate them so that hopefully they can get out in front of you. I so appreciate that you're talking about this. Uh, I, it's interesting me as I reflect on my own experiences, not being a person in heterosexual sexual relationships. I also see that playing out in gay male communities, too, where the language about each other is about objectification. It's not, yeah. we're so underdeveloped as boys and men to express caring emotions, what we like about people to be able to share yeah. um, caring emotions in general. We know how to object objectify. We know how to treat something as separate and something that I can take and conquer. 
it makes me think of a relationship I was in a few years ago that I went on this trip with a, a partner of mine at the time and him and his friends were just talking about all of their sexual conquests that they had over 20 years ago. And I'm like, you're in your forties now. Like we're still telling those stories as if they yeah. mean something about your value as a person. Like we've moved on, we've grown up, we're not in our twenties anymore. Like let's, let's have a real adult conversation, connect with each other, not figure out our social status by something that happened 20 years ago that is kind of disgusting to hear you talk about anyways. And it's going to, look, I, I, it's going to happen with, with my son, with, with every, you know, ever all these young people, you know, it, it happens as adults, as you, as you're saying. Um, but if we can, like I said, we just get a little bit out in front of it. I wish I had known, you know, because, look, uh, I came into my own late. Uh, you know, I had my struggles. And, again, I was able to turn, turn you know, myself around. Um, but I, I just wish uh, I had a, uh, someone uh, who could give me some of this information at a younger age. I would have benefited a heck of a lot from it. My dad wasn't involved in my life. Um and, um, and so, you know, maybe I try to overcompensate because, you know, I am trying to front this information for my sons and half the time, or actually three quarters of the time, it doesn't seem like they're even listening to me. But I just, I want to give them an advantage. I want them to be, um, to, to be more advanced emotionally, socially, more confident with who they are and not having to conform with uh, a drinking culture, you know, an objectification culture. Because, you know, theoretically, they're going to go off to college and they will be surrounded by some people who are like that. And I'm not saying they're bad people. I just want my sons to have balance and to see what's happening and be aware of what's happening. And I hope they're brave enough to, to say something. But if they're not, okay, just don't, don't contribute to it. Okay. If you're not feeling like you can say something, then, then fine. But do not be a part of it. You're better than them. And, and and so that, you know, that's what I strive for and what I hope you know, they can accomplish. I'm so glad that you do over, you do try to overcorrect for these situations, because I think that sort of concept of healthy male mentors and balanced male mentors that have a different value system than some of these outdated power over dynamic kind of traditional masculine ideals, there's such a, a lack of that. And so we need people like you overdoing it to sort of make up for the, the the negative models that we're getting to see constantly. I mean, look at where we're at as a country with our president, the things that are being able to be said about women and about people. It's just, it's mind blowing to me. You know, uh, and, and this isn't, uh, I, I'm not going to get, at least I don't think it's political, but, you know, you know, four plus years ago, when, uh, you know, there were numerous allegations against Donald Trump, uh, about, you know, sexual assault. I think 14, 15 women came forward. You know, I was astonished that that wasn't a disqualifier, um, for many people. And, and I would, no matter if Republican or Democrat, if he were the Democratic nominee, I'd say the exact same thing. Um, these women aren't lying. And, and okay, maybe a couple of them are. I don't think any of them are, but 16 or 15 women all, all saying they were sexually assaulted. Um, and what's going on in our country where that's not an instant disqualifier for any office, for, for any position, uh, regardless of whether it's in politics or not? 
uh, I, I just find it so troubling. Um, and you know, I, you know, in the same vein, it's the same thing with like sexual harassment. Um, for some reason, and, you know, way over my pay grade, there's so many men, and I'm sure there's women too. So, so, uh, you know, I can only, I have more of these conversations with men or with my circle of friends, so it's easier for me to kind of pinpoint those conversations. So I'm sure there's many women who feel the same way. But I have many conversations with men and my friends, and sometimes it's it scares me what I hear them say, how so many of these, you know, sexual harassment uh, claims are just made up, or they're just gripes. There's someone who didn't get a promotion. Do you think someone wants to bring this about, you know, upon themselves? Do you think, what do they have to gain from this? And so, and I, and I, I feel for them because again, I think it's just the narrative we've heard our whole lives as men. Um, and, uh, again, I just think it's, we're evolving slowly and, uh, and maybe too slowly, but essentially that's why I wrote this book and not just on the sexuality front and not just for, for boys and men. Um, it's for all of us to make progress as human beings for, for as parents and caregivers for young people um, to help them be successful. It is no joke coming of age today. And I, and I always, and I say in the book that, you know, I got duos. I, man, I messed up. I did so many things I shouldn't have done. I mean, I was, again, I was a good kid, but I just, I made a lot, I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done, but I got duos. And duos are much harder to come by today. And, and a, a big part of that has to do with the digital world and with, you know, young people are, are growing up in and the cameras and, you know, social media and, you know, uh, having, putting everything in writing digitally. So it's always going to be there. Um, but, you know, I want young people to know, you know, they, they have every opportunity in the world. There's so much um, that's wonderful about the world today that they're growing up in. But there's a level of, of uh, accountability and forethought for teenagers today that I don't think is fair. They shouldn't have to worry about all these consequences of their digital footprint and everything else when they're 13 or 12. But that's the world we're in. And so, you know, the do-overs are a lot harder to come by today than, than, than I do. That's so true. It's such a unique element that, that teenagers have to deal with these days that your generation didn't have to. I was the first generation that had social media to we were the first that got Facebook. I mean, there was MySpace before us, but like Facebook came out while I was yeah. in college. And it was like the really the start the kickoff to real social media. And, and I can think back on like, I'm glad I have experience with it. But I also am like, oh, there's a lot of things that I about me as a 20 year old as me as an 18 year old that I don't want to be held accountable for at this point. Yeah. And not and that's like, that what I mean for myself is like just things that I said or things that were flippant or yeah. things that were attention seeking or whatever of that kind of thing. I'm not talking about like overtly racism or sexism or, or of course. yeah. But but it is interesting to be growing up in a world where it's actually like there's a whole groupings of people that are spending all their time searching people's digital footprint and lo- looking for the flaws in them, putting them out in front of people and canceling them. That's a, a lot of pressure. I, I thought about that while I was putting this podcast out, which was, oh, I'm going to put myself out there. 
and I could get canceled. I could do this imperfectly. I could not be, I could be the gay guy that's trying to talk about masculinity. I could just run right into my childhood wounds of not being man enough real quick and be canceled on the internet. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot to deal with. And I, it's hard for me to imagine what teenagers experience. Luckily, they're sort of, prefrontal cortex isn't fully fun- fully online so they're right. not thinking about those consequences in the now but right. but that's also the downside is is they're much more in the moment and reactionary and not thinking about how their impact necessarily on others and what that will do long term so you're so right that's such a unique element that we need to be talking about with teenagers um is their digital footprint and yeah. safety online oh for sure and, and you know um you know the digital footprint is is a huge thing and, you know, one of my sons, you know, just, he didn't, you know, at a younger age, he wanted to create a YouTube Lego channel because he loved Legos. And I said, I said, Bud, you, you're good at Legos, but no matter what you do, no matter how good you are, you're going to put this, this channel together and people, some of the people are just going to be brutal. Some of them are just going to troll you. Some of them are just going to try to knock you down. And I go, and it's out there. And, uh, not only is it part of your digital footprint, but it can harm you emotionally. It may be very hurtful, even though what they're saying is true. Even you don't, even you know that you don't know these people, and who cares what they have to say? And he thought about it. Like, yeah, Dad, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that. And I go, well, you know, maybe you'll do it when you're older, but you're a little young now for that. I think you're 13 or 14. And I go, maybe you'll do it later, but now it's just a, it's a bit young for that because you know people are going to come for you, and even when it's not justified, it's just the world in which we live. And, you know, turning to the, to the digital footprint thing, I spend probably, I get, I get hired most of all my topics. Um, I get hired most to teach on, on, on digital safety and digital footprint. And I get, I get hired starting in fifth grade to go into schools, uh, or for parents and their families to talk about digital footprint because I think as parents, we're starting to realize more and more how impactful a digital footprint can be for good or bad. And, and at such a young age, you know, from the first time they're, they're clicking online, liking, sharing, whatever they're doing online, and it's getting younger and younger, uh, it's, it's comprised, you know, within their digital footprint. And, you know, when I hire, I, I supervise 20 people for the LA City Attorney's Office. And it, when I, when I got hired 20 years ago, it was competitive, but nowhere near what it is now. To get a job in my office, it, it, it's very, very competitive. And I'll always narrow down, you know, my candidates, my top candidates, like two or three. And then I do a deep dive into their digital footprint. And if I, I'm, I'm looking for ways to disqualify somebody. Like it, I can't decide between these two people. Let's say they're both so great, but I have one position. I got to find something to distinguish them. And sometimes I find something troubling in their digital footprint. And that's what gives the other person the slight edge. And when I teach on, on, on digital safety and citizenship and so on and so forth, but when I'm focusing on the footprint, I'm, you know, explaining to the young people, look, you know, your reputation may not mean a lot to you now, but it's going to. And the first people, the first place people are going to, you know, go to learn about you is Google. And Google is, is essentially your digital reputation more or less. And it's incredibly important to recognize as a young person, that there are two groups of people that you have to be very mindful of who are decision makers who are going to be checking you out online. 
most, but many people are going to go to college. Those are going to be college admissions administrators, and that's going to be uh, prospective employers. They are going to be checking you out online. What are they going to find? And and then, I, you know, I, I try to turn this into a positive, as I do in the book, that, you know, since you know employers are going to be checking you out online sooner or later, college administrators, or some of the young people who go off to college, they're going to be checking you out. It's so important to populate your digital footprint with things that are the best reflection of you. Um, an award you receive, volunteer work you do, something you're passionate about that you're pursuing. And it's not phony stuff. You're not, you're not creating, uh, you know, it's not fiction. You're not creating this solely to, to put in your digital footprint. You're doing these things already. You're simply highlighting the good things you're doing. And put that out into your digital footprint so that when that college administrator is checking you out, hey, they see you volunteered, you know, at the pet store to clean or, or uh, to adopt a, a pet, you know, uh, shelter. Um, they, they saw that you were doing something you loved in marine biology, whatever it is. Um, there are ways we can populate our digital footprint to, um, really reflect the best versions of who we are. I laugh a little as I was reading that section of the book on sort of your digital footprint. You walk through an exercise of how to check out your di- your digital footprint, how what things to Google, what combinations of things to Google. And I laugh because yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, I better do this. <laughs> I started doing it while reading the book was like making sure what was about yeah. out there about yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and look, for some young people, you know, they're going to do that exercise, you know, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. I list about 18 different ways you should be searching your name and exactly how to do it. And if a young person, you know, before they apply for a job, before they apply to college, if they do go through that exercise and they find something that isn't the best reflection of who they are, there are ways to, to, you know, get around it. There are ways to kind of, you know, um, bury that down in Google searches. And to put some, to populate your digital footprint with good things. In other words, it's not the end of the world. You know, uh, there's, there's so much pressure on young people today and everyone in society, right? It's a crazy world we're living in today. But I also want to make very clear to, to young people that it's okay to make a mistake. You know, there's no mistake that you can make in, in which, you know, there's no recovery. That, that you can always do better. You can always find a way to, to improve things. And that goes uh, the same with your digital footprint. If there's something bad in your digital footprint, well, well, let's populate some good things in there so that instead of appearing on page one of the Google results, it's on page three. Because most people don't go past page one of the, of the Google results. I think like 90% of people don't go past that first page. So, you know, it's never too late. Hope is not always lost. You can always do better. And I'm living through that because I made a ton of mistakes. Yeah, I mean, you had mistakes from your life and you still are have a really good job as a prosecutor, supervising people, writing a book. Like, there is redemption after mistakes. And it's just about... Yeah, and I'm still making mistakes. I'm still, you know... I have, I have, I have, I don't know, I have trauma in my life like most people do. And, and, you know, I'm just very fortunate that I, I, I married my wife, Lisa, who, you know, is supportive. And, and when I don't want to talk, because that's another thing. I never talked about my feelings ever. I didn't talk about my feelings. You were taught cry. not to talk about your feelings, well, 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 probably. Right. <laughs> right. Like, who am I going to talk to? 
my so what I did growing up, I just kept it all inside. And when I try to do that with my wife, it's a mm. no go. She's going to say that doesn't work with me. You grew up your whole life not sharing your feelings. We're going to talk about these things. And it's been good for me because she knows my patterns. She knows how I grew up. She knows how I buried my emotions. And it's not healthy for me. And it's caused real problems for me. And so, you know, I'm still evolving. You know, I'm still trying to improve. Um, and certainly I, I, I'd like to think I've come a long way. But, you know, the big push with my book is to, you know, try to let these young people, you know, not necessarily have to stumble the way that I may have stumbled, you may have stumbled, or many of us have stumbled. And, you know, unfortunately, schools today are not, most schools are not going to teach the concepts in this book. Um, and I'm not blaming schools. They're, they're underfunded. Um, they have more standardized tests than they can possibly handle. Um, but geez, you know, shouldn't the topics in this book be a high school class? Um, aren't these just as important as another math class, another history class? And maybe we'll get there one day, but we're not yet. Um, and we want the young people in our lives to grow up safely. And, and I always say, you know, we can't expect young people to make informed decisions if they don't have the information. And really, that's what I'm trying to do. Get the information to these young people. They're going to decide what they decide. And we can't control that. But at least we can share some information with them so we can hope that they make better decisions. Amen to that. One last thing that I wanted to sort of call out about the book that I just wanted to sort of express some gratitude to you for how you wrote this book is that you chose a very inclusive writing style and the images that go along in the book are very inclusive too. They represent not just white, cisgender, male, female relationships, heterosexual relationships. There are non-white folks in the images. There are non-heterosexual relationships there are, it's gender inclusive language that it, it that values all beings and so i really wanted to thank you for making sure to make that a point in this that that not only are you accepting but you're being inclusive with your language and and more types of people can see themselves because you speak directly to them instead of just talking to white boys and girls and leaving out the rest of us <laughs> Well, you know, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that because that, that was a big thing for me. Uh, I wanted this book to be inclusive. I wanted anyone who picked up this book to feel like it could apply to them, that, um, it resonated with who they are. And we all, we come in so many different shapes and sizes. We're all alike. We all want the same things in life. Um, and so that was a huge thing for me to write. And it was hard. Um, to, because, you know, so many of these issues, um, can skew one way. For example, sexual assault, you know, um, going back to that. Well, more males commit sexual assault than females. But, you know, if I, if I just say it like that, well, then it, it, it you know, undermines, you know, guys like me who were sexually attacked by females. So, um, it, 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 anything can happen to anyone. We all want the same things. We want love. We want to be accepted. And, uh, no, I appreciate that because that was a, that was a big part of my, well, it's definitely well accomplished. I could, I was definitely very aware throughout the book of how you were really speaking to a diverse population of people through your writing. So thank you for doing that. I think it's so important in this time. So I'd like to end my interviews with sort of a whopper of a question. It's sometimes challenging to, to land it in this place, but 
If you could give men, or teen boys in this case, one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, um, that is a, that's a great question. To me, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is if they're hurting, if they're, if they're feeling down, if something's really bothering them, um, to, to share it with somebody they trust. And if I, you know, when I look back on my own life and I, and I just was talking about it, I still follow that pattern of, of clamming up and not wanting to share my emotions. And sometimes my wife's got to beat it out of me. You know, I wish as a young man, I had known that it's okay to share my feelings, particularly when I'm upset, particularly when I'm hurting. I wish I had known that, you know, um, to find somebody. It, it, I didn't have, so I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents um, as a young person for a lot of reasons. And I wish I had turned to somebody else a trusted adult. I wish I had, you know, talked to a family friend, a, a school counselor, a coach, a rabbi, just whoever it would have been. I wish I would have found that person um, and talked to them because all the things I was you know, going through and all the, the, the self-suffering, and, and I don't think it would have just gone away, but I, I'm very confident it would have gotten better. I'm very confident I would have continued into my downward spiral if I'd just gotten some things off my chest. In other words, I suffered in silence. And so um, that's probably my, my biggest message to, to young people in particular is, and of course, for, for you know, boys and girls, but particularly, you know, for the, for the boys out there that um, they're trying to, you know, uh, conform to what they, what they may think masculinity is supposed to be. Um, and really, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with sharing what you're going through. Find someone you trust, and you will be better for it. Um, I can guarantee. I think the world would be such a drastically different place just with that one little piece. If if boys and men started learning to share about their feelings and to have some sort of dialogue around them, yeah. so I I so appreciate that. So the book is "What They Don't Teach Teens: Life Safety Skills for Teens and Adults Who Care for Them." You're Jonathan Crystal. How how do people find out more information about you, this book, and the work you're doing in the world? Uh, well, thank you. So What They Don't Teach Teens is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. My website is whatthedontteachteens.com. You can reach out to me there. I'm always happy to hear from people, particularly, you know, a lesson they learned from the book, something, a way it helped them. So whatthedontteachteens.com, uh, and, and, of course, the book's available. Any well, I definitely recommend the listeners checking out this book. I think it can be such an important source of information, of knowledge, of the life skills that we're not being taught as teenagers in school. We're being taught a curriculum of things that we think we will need. And yet there are some real life skills that are not being taught that need to be updated to the 21st century, especially this concept of like digital footprint. And uh, there's so many complexities to life now. And so I really I think this book has a lot of value and I really encourage the listeners to check it out. If anyone wants to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at travers03. I'm also on Patreon. If you want to support the movement that is The New Masculine, you can go to patreon.com slash The New Masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash The New Masculine. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining me and for helping us open the aperture a bit and start to explore 
not only what is our role within masculinity as men, but what are we teaching young boys? How are we helping grow the youth into the next generation of men that really know how to embody the values of the new masculine? So thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Travis, for what you're doing.